All right, well, we are in the Christmas season. Uh, We are right in the middle of it, and we're having a good time talking about belief, belief. And uh, belief is an incredible idea, especially around Christmas time, because here you have this Santa story that's going around, and every family has their own rhythm of belief with Santa. And then you have this story of Jesus and the manger, the birth of Jesus, and these extraordinary events, and, and people struggle with the belief about that as well. So we're talking about a season of belief this Christmas. So what is belief? What is belief? Well, what we know about belief is that belief is the most powerful force on earth. I talked about this just for a couple of minutes uh, last night at the Christmas concert, belief, but belief is the most powerful force on earth. I'll give you a small tragic example of what I mean by this. Two nights ago, there were about a thousand people packed into a, a small concert auditorium and people began to believe that they were under chemical attack. And so panic swept through the nightclub and people rushed out of very small doors and small corridors and six people were trampled to death. Five teenagers and one mother of of four. Tragic event. Authorities have no idea what, if any, substance was even there, but they believed they were under chemical attack and they ran out of there and six people lost their lives. That's the power of belief, the most powerful force on earth. Civilizations rise and fall based on what those civilizations believe. Rome, first great Western empire, believed that the gods were calling them to conquer the earth. And so they, they, they formed armies and they, and, they, and they took over whole areas of land because of this belief that the gods had somehow called them or destined them to rule the world. And that was true of Britain. That was true of France. It's true of America. We called it the manifest destiny that God is calling us to expand our territory. Very famously and tragically, the Third Reich believed that they were called, that they were destined to have this superior Aryan nation rule over all of Europe. And as a result, 80 million people died. That's the power of belief. That's the power of belief. And our individual lives are oftentimes, not oftentimes, every time driven by what we believe. For example, if we believe we're alone, even though we're surrounded by friends, if we believe we're alone, we're very much alone. If we believe we are unloved, even though there may be love in our lives, we live in a very real way unloved because what we believe determines everything. There's nothing more powerful in all the earth and nothing more powerful in our own lives than belief. In fact, our brains are wired to perceive what we believe more than they're wired to perceive what we see. I mean, this is really astounding. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, I want to show you this, uh, this picture here. What do you see? What do you see in the gray area? Most people see a pair of zigzag lines and a pair of curved lines, right? And then zigzag, then curve. Is that what you see? That's not true. You see the area in the white? The area in the white is all curved lines. Those curved lines just keep on going, but your brain refuses to see all curved lines. It's called curved blindness. Now, I've had people today say there's no way all those lines are curved because your brain perceives what you believe more than it perceives what is real. But every single line in there is curved the whole way across. I'll show you another picture. Now you know you're being tricked. Who's taller? Who's taller? You know it's a trick question. They're both exactly five feet tall. Nothing's been altered, no Photoshop here. They just happen to be in a room. It's called the Ames Room, and it's custom designed to trick your brain. It's very deep on the left side, and the floor is tilted. It's meant to trick your mind. But our mind is locked into certain beliefs. One of them is the belief of perspective. Everything must be in perspective. And and so when we see objects and shapes and they don't quite line up, our brain orients them in a certain way. Our brains are wired to perceive what we believe 
more than they're wired to perceive what we see. So get this. If we can't always believe what we can see, how much more difficult is it to believe what we can't see? And that's the message of, of God. That's the message of what we call the gospel. The good news is this, it's this unseen message that gets put out there. That God's a loving heavenly father that he's engaged in this world and he sent his son into this world to bring a whole new reality of love and to reconcile, to bring the whole world back to God. That's, that's a message. We can't see it. We can't prove it. Can't test tube it. It's just a message. It's an unseen reality that we either choose to believe or not to believe. So what is belief? What is belief? Well, here's a dictionary definition of belief. I actually kind of love it. Belief is the conviction of the truth of anything. If you're convinced it's the truth, if that's your conviction, then it's true and you live as though it's true. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, There are people who believe that George Bush caused and planned the 9-11 attacks. There are people who believe that. They're conspiracy theorists out there. And boy, those people are just, they've got to be driven crazy by all of these ideas that are just kind of conjured up. And it's based on a worldview, a perception that, that the governments are out to get us and attack us and Illuminati's and all. I mean, there's all kinds of worlds out there that are created that are fully believed in. And so the whole worldview is shaped by that. Belief is the conviction of anything. Political beliefs, political beliefs are often very religious. You know, they've been passed on from generation to generation and you believe it and it's a conviction. Our whole worldview is shaped by our political beliefs. Same thing, of course, with religious beliefs. Religious beliefs that are passed on generation by generation, uh, they're ingrained in in Sunday schools and youth ministries and church communities and and beliefs kind of rise up and and, and sometimes they become, you know, quite, quite hard and stern, right? These are religious beliefs, but all of our life is dictated by the things that we believe. I'll give you an example. There's a a person who is sick, seriously sick. That person has two friends. One friend is a man of, of faith, and so that person is praying to God to make his friend well. Then there's a person who is not a person of faith, and he's trusting in medical science to make that person well. That person becomes well. Well, the person of faith says, I believe prayer works. The person not of faith says, I believe medicine works. The same experience is taking place seen from two totally different perspectives. Why? It's the power of belief. It's the power of belief. What we believe shapes how we see and experience everything in this world. I'm gonna read that again. What we believe shapes how we see and experience everything in this world. So what we believe is so critically important. It shapes how we see and experience everything. So what's the biblical definition of belief? We talk about the dictionary definition. It's the conviction of anything. What's the biblical definition? I love this out of Nelson's Bible dictionary. It says this, that belief is a confident attitude toward God and a commitment to submit to his will. That's kind of biblical belief. It's not just believing in kind of anything. It's believing in God. Not just believing things about God, but believing God and trusting God and then placing our lives into his care or submission to his will. That's biblical belief. The word used most of belief or faith in the Bible is the word pisteo. It's the word pisteo, and it means to be persuaded. And I love that definition of belief or faith, to be persuaded, because it's a little soft. Sometimes in religious circles, belief can be very hard, you know? You gotta believe this, you need to believe this, and you gotta believe with full sincerity and without doubt and hardcore and all in, but the word actually means to be persuaded. It's a softer kind of a journey word 
We're on a journey of persuasion. And so belief is more of a journey. And belief is a journey of, of persuasion where do we believe that there is a God or not? Do we believe he's a good God or not? Do we believe that he's a loving God? Do we believe that he's engaged? Now, do we believe he is engaged personally through Jesus Christ? Do we believe that the death of Christ atoned for the sins of the world? Do we believe that there is life after death through the resurrection of Christ? There's all these, these journeys that we're on of faith. And that journey of faith involves our heritage for sure. A lot of times we just believe what's been passed on, nothing really wrong with that, but let's add to that a journey of the mind, a journey of reason, you know, let's, let's read, let's think, it's okay to challenge, it's okay even to, to doubt or to question as part of a natural healthy journey of the soul and of the mind. It's this journey of persuasion. I love that biblical word. Belief is persuasion. Now, uh, there's a, a, a particular passage in Hebrews that I love about the concept of faith and belief, and it's a fascinating verse. It's found in, in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, Hebrews is a very intellectual book. Two books of the New Testament tend to be more intellectual, Romans and Hebrews, and I think Hebrews has them kind of trumped, and we don't even know who wrote Hebrews. Some man or woman wrote this incredibly genius book called Hebrews, we have no idea who wrote it. Uh, somebody figured it out here. But listen to this. It, it's, this is both intellectual and, I think, pretty artistic and thought-provoking. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. These are two dichotomies. These are, this is a pair of opposites, get this. Faith is assurance of what's hoped for. Assurance and hope do not collide nicely. Assurance is kind of fact. Hope is, well, I think and hope that this is where the future's gonna come from. What, what belief is, is, is this wedge right in the middle of what can be proved and what is unknown. And, and there is assurance of things hoped for. In other words, I'm going to decide to live my life as though what I hope for is true. And then there's a conviction of things unseen. Those are opposites. Usually we're convicted about the things that we can actually see and touch and experience. But the world of faith, the world of belief is to have that same conviction about things that are not seen. And this isn't blind, you know, I'm just gonna choose to kind of force this. It's a journey of persuasion, a journey of faith that we would live our lives assured even of things hoped for and convicted even of things not seen. That's the risk of faith. That's the bravery of faith. So to believe is to accept as true what I can't outright prove. I like this definition. To believe is to accept as true what I can't outright prove. For example, I don't believe Chris Caudill is in this room. I know he's in the room, he's right there. I can see his you know, glasses, he's waving, you know, good looking guy back there, nicely, the concert yesterday, nice job tech crew. He's right there. If I'm talking to you face to face, I, I don't start my conversation by saying, let me start by saying, I believe you are here with me. No, you're right here, you'd slap me upside, right? It's just, no, you're here. So we only talk about belief when things are unseen or unknowable. In previous services, I, I told the, the congregation, I believe my wife is on this campus. I don't know she's on this campus, right? I have some evidence and I'm persuaded that she's on this campus, why? Well, we drove here together, that's a good start. We passed in the hallways a couple times, maybe a few texts back and forth. I'm persuaded there's some evidence that she's actually here on this campus. But what I told the other, the other uh, congregations is, she may have very well run away with another man this morning and I don't know it. I don't know. She's not in front of me. She very well may be down the road with another man. I hope she's not. I believe she's not, but I don't know, right? And my life is lived with this assurance, 
with this persuasion that my wife loves me and will not leave me. And so that results in a certain kind of life and a certain kind of marriage. And so I demanded that she be in this room. So she's sitting right over there just to be sure. (laughs) So that's the nature of belief, to accept as true what I cannot outright prove. And here's another reality about belief that I think is very cool in the Bible, that belief doesn't have to be perfect. Belief doesn't have to be perfect. That should cause a lot of us to be at peace. There's this great interaction that Jesus had with a desperate father. This desperate father, out of love for his son, just wanted his son to be better. But his son was mute since he was a child, and he was suffering with these incredible seizures. And and Jesus is brought to this father. Now listen to what the father says. Immediately the father said of, uh, of the child, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, but what? Say it out loud. Help my unbelief. This desperate dad, desperate to have his son healed and well, he comes across Jesus and Jesus says incredible things happen with belief and the dad, all they can muster up is say, I believe I might've heard some things about Jesus. You know, here you're standing right here and there's a whole bunch of people here and something might happen, but help my unbelief. And Jesus went right in and took care of business. I love how gracious God is when it comes to belief. It's this soft kind of journey of persuasion and it ebbs and it flows and it's all this journey about not only what we believe about God but who God is and entrusting our life to God even though we can't prove a whole lot about him. We're persuaded again by creation and by his word and by each other and by this journey of faith together. But God all the while says your faith doesn't have to be perfect. That's a great assurance because I know when I was young in faith, I thought that belief had to be real firm. Belief had to be sincere. Belief had to be without doubt, hardcore, all in. So I remember praying. I could be praying about anything. It doesn't matter what it was, you know. I could be praying, and I, and I knew God wanted my faith. God wanted me to believe. He wanted me to be sincere and without doubt. So I'd pray, God, I believe, I believe, I believe. And then this, this little doubt kind of floated through my mind. Maybe God, you know, isn't hearing my prayers, and maybe God doesn't really care. Maybe God doesn't even exist. And I thought the whole system would break down if my belief wasn't perfect and sincere. Because I thought that God was mad at me because you blew it two days ago. And I'm mad at you. So I'd be praying, praying, praying. And I thought faith and belief would get God's heart to turn toward me again. As long as my belief was sincere. As long as my belief was solid and unshakable. But as soon as it was shaky, I thought, okay, God's mad at me again. Hmm. God's a loving heavenly father. And he's very patient with our journey of faith, right? Strong, solid faith doesn't necessarily mean that we have now God's, you know, unleashing of favor in our lives. And if we kind of waver or are struggling, that God's somehow pouty against us. God just loves us and he wants us to experience this great journey of faith. And sometimes it's, it's seasons of solid faith and grounded faith and other times there's a season of struggle. And I have to tell you one of the most freeing things that you can tell somebody who's suffering suffering intensely, maybe even suffering with the loss of a loved one, to say, it's okay that you struggle. It's okay that your faith is weak. It's okay that you doubt. It's okay. Let's keep walking this journey together. The key line of our Christmas concert was, to believe is brave and what is bravery without fear. It's a great line, not necessarily from the Bible, but it is absolutely biblical. To believe is brave, and what is bravery without fear? The very nature of belief is to entrust our lives to something we can't prove. That's scary. That's scary. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, bungee jumping. Anybody bungee jumped in here? It's like, can you absolutely prove that thing's going to hold? <laughs> you can't prove it. You, but you, whoo, it's like, 
Let's just hope for things unseen. Oh, yeah, got me. Good. Excellent. That's belief. It's just that kind of a thing, right? So belief requires bravery. And what is bravery without fear? And don't we see that in Mary, the Christmas story? Don't we see this bravery of belief in Mary? I'm just going to spend maybe 10 minutes on Mary. Here's this story. This angel visits Mary. Where did this angel visit Mary? What's the place the angel visited Mary? Her hometown of Nazareth. Here's how it goes. In the sixth month, sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, her friend's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Galilee's not exactly a vacation spot. It's that northern area. It wasn't really well thought after, fishing villages, things like that. But Nazareth, wow, Nazareth. In one word, I could describe Nazareth very likely as just a dump. Now, how, how do we kind of know that? Well, we kind of know that because up until 1962, uh, archaeologists thought Nazareth actually is mythology. It didn't actually exist. There was nothing permanent about Nazareth. There, are, there were no ruins to go visit. There was no evidence that Nazareth even existed. You couldn't even find the name Nazareth in any ancient document of the time. So people thought Nazareth is just made up in the Bible. It's mythology. 1962, a first century list was discovered of 18 priests and where they came from, and the 14th priest was listed as coming from Nazareth, the only evidence at the time that Nazareth even existed. It was a nothing of a town. So archaeologists postulate that it might have been a squatter's village, just a hillside that people who could not even afford a plot of land would just kind of set up tents and just trash and garbage to kind of make up homes, just makeshift homes, and eventually it kind of shapes into something that looks a little bit like a village. That happens a lot in, in Mexico, by the way. You just have hillsides, squatters' hillsides, and later um, the Mexican government comes in and puts out boundary lines and utilities and things like that. It's probably what Nazareth was, a nothing of a city. How about the person? The person is Mary. Mary. Gabriel was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Who was Mary? Well, the word virgin means, means young woman, which means she was pre-marriage, which means she was about 12 years old, just to get you a little bit of a, of a hint on who she was. From Nazareth, about 12 years old. The word virgin means young woman. She was betrothed. She was, she was about 12. Usually young women in the ancient Near East were married off at about 13 years old. So the dad would make a deal with another family that one of their children could marry their daughter. There would be money exchanged and the woman would be placed under the authority of the husband after a one-year betrothal. That was Mary, about 12 years old in that betrothal period. Now my daughter sitting over there is about to be 11 years old here in a couple weeks. And I'm just imagining one year from now, she would be visited by this angel with this message. That's who Mary was. And Mary was given a promise. What's the promise that the angel came to deliver? Luke 1.28. The angel came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now we read that in English 2,000 years later and we go, oh, that angel's very nice, very kind. That's a nice hello. Well, that was much, much, much more than a nice hello. There's a, a phrase here, oh favored one, that would have floored Mary because that phrase, oh favored one, was used so rarely in the ancient Near East. It was only used of people who were very rich, 
very well off, very powerful, had a lot of political authority. That, that phrase, oh, favored one, would be sparsely used and only of the highest of the elite. And it was used of Mary, this 12-year-old betrothed young lady from Nazareth. I guarantee you no one from Nazareth was called, oh, favored one. In fact, this phrase was so absolutely stunning that Mary flipped out. Here's what Daryl Bach says about this phrase. This phrase, oh, favored one, is an expression of divine working. Favor signifies God's gracious choice of someone through whom God does something special. And 2,000 years ago, ancient Near East, God did something special in you if you were rich, if you were powerful, if you were prosperous. That's where that phrase was used. God uses it towards Mary. So here's her reaction, Luke 1, 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. I mean, we read over that and we're like, hey, no big deal, that's kind of nice. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Uh, Gabriel, you must be talking, who's behind me? I'm not a favored one. Who, who are you talking to? She was greatly troubled. Now, get this. She wasn't so troubled an angel was talking to her. She was troubled that the angel said, you're favored. That's how shocking that phrase was to be used of Mary. Shocking. And the angel goes on. The angel said to her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. He doubles down. You have found favor with God. Mary, I know you haven't found favor with men. You haven't found favor with the society around you. Nobody would use that phrase towards you, but you have found favor with God. What a cool way to start a conversation. You have found favor with God. And then here we go. And I want you to just imagine the angel not taking a breath because he's just got to get this all out and he is flooring this poor young woman. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, I'm going to take a breath, but the angel did not take a breath here, right? You shall call his name Jesus. That name Jesus is the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua. So if there's any Joshua's in here, Josh's, Joshies, you got the same name as Jesus, right? So just remind your family of that, you know, especially Christmas. I'm the Jesus of the household. That's his name, right? Now that name is significant. It means God saves. Now there there were a lot of people named Jesus, but this one in particular, this baby in particular, That name meant everything, God saves. So get this, Mary, oh favored one. Oh, what are you talking about, oh favored one? That's quite a deal. And then buckle up, you will conceive a son. His name will be Jesus. And then he goes on. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, all of Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You understand why Gabriel didn't take a breath? Mary's just blown away. Here's this 12-year-old. She's struggling with being called favored. Oh, and by the way, you'll conceive a son miraculously. His name will be God saves. He will be great. He will be a king over all Israel and all the world, and it will last forever. The end. That's the announcement. That's wild. And, And not only that, this announcement is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise to save the world through a coming son and a coming king. 2 Samuel 7, here's the the prophecy. It's about David and Solomon and the earthly kingdom of of Israel. But as with everything in the Old Testament, it's pointing forward to Jesus Christ. I will raise up your your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
This is what Gabriel was quoting, a prophecy a thousand years earlier that talked about the coming of a new king who would be a son of God who would establish an eternal kingdom. That son is Jesus. So you can imagine Mary being completely stunned by what she's hearing, and so she has a logistical question. Mary said to the angel, so how's this gonna be since I'm a virgin? I'm a young woman, not yet married. How is this going to be? Now, you know, if you're taking notes, you can, you can write this. Um, conception requires copulation. Just write that in your notes. Most of us know that. Conception requires copulation. Mary knows full well where she's been, and she, I, there, there's been no funny business going on in this world. How is this going to happen? See, Mary is facing a nightmare in front of her. We think this is cute and quaint. It is not cute and quaint. This is a nightmare. Here's a 12-year-old that, according to the promise, is about to become pregnant. She hasn't slept with anybody and here's an ancient Near East, highly religious culture that has judgment on hair triggers. If a betrothed woman got pregnant, it would create a problem in the family. The assumption would be, well, she and her betrothed got a little busy a little early. And so you have some conversations. It's a family shame. You kind of deal with the family shame. You might put some things together, right? And you, and you, and you get the family together and you work it out and there might be some grace there. If, however, Joseph said, by the way, that kid's not mine. All hell would break loose. Likely what would happen is she would be sent away. She would be cast aside. She would be sent off. That means outside the city to avoid shaming the family. She'd be just dropped off, likely in a city where she would beg with her child until she died. That's what it meant to send her away. That would be the norm. At worst, this family would do kind of a, a, a family shaming, stoning. They would stone her to death because that was considered by their law to be a capital crime. Mary was facing a nightmare. This was not quaint. This was not Christmas card. This was a nightmare. What was she going to do? The angel responds, the spirit of God will make this happen in you, Mary. And there's something really cool about it. The Spirit of God will make this happen. This is a little bit of a nod to creation itself. This is a little bit of a nod to the, to the first two chapters of the Bible where God, with a word, by the moving of the Spirit, made the entire cosmos from nothing. God created from nothing the entire cosmos by his word and by his Spirit. And so by the word of God with Mary and by the Spirit of God, God is gonna create something new from nothing. Not a whole new cosmos, but a child, and a whole new reality would be birthed by that child, made from nothing by the word of God, by the spirit of God. In fact, the child would be the word of God, generated by the spirit of God. Essentially, God through Gabriel is saying to Mary, if I can create the heavens and the earth with a word by my spirit, by my spirit, I can create in you a brand new child. And by the way, that brand new child will birth a brand new kingdom. And that kingdom will be the kingdom of heaven. And it will be a kingdom that has no end, an eternal kingdom. And the name of Christ will be great. The name of Jesus will be great. And then just to kind of put a bow on this, the angel said to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. And God said that before in his word. And he always proves to be true. Whatever God says, nothing's impossible. He does something impossible. And so Mary says, okay, I know what you did in the past and I believe you now. Despite the fact that this all seems very unreasonable, 
I was called favored, that's unreasonable. You said I would conceive a son, that's unreasonable. That he would be great, I'm in Nazareth, that's unreasonable. He will be a king, that's unreasonable. He will have a kingdom over all Israel, that's unreasonable. Over all nations and forever, that's unreasonable. So what's Mary gonna do? What's Mary gonna do? I love how she says this. She doesn't say, yeah, let's do it, let's storm the gates, let's build the kingdom, listen to what she says. Mary said, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord, just a humble posture, I'm a servant of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. She was about to step into a living hell, having a child during that betrothal that wasn't Joseph's. And she said, I'm a servant of God. What he says goes, and I'm gonna step into this world by belief. I am scared to death. She may have had doubts. There's nothing physical, tangible around her. All she had was a word of an angel. She could have wrote that off to, I don't know, bad spaghetti or whatever. I mean, she stepped into belief and she placed her life on the basis of God's word. Belief is accepting as true something we can't outright prove. And that's exactly what Mary did. And Mary chose to say simply this statement, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. And I'm telling you, when Mary stepped into that faith, when she stepped into that belief, when she rested her life on something she couldn't prove at the time, this came as a package deal. And that package deal is more tragedy than victory. When we think of Mary or we see drawings or paintings of Mary and we see this this precious, beloved, perfectly dressed woman with a halo, her life was not an easy life. Her life was more tragedy than victory. Mary gave birth to a son under the shame of a child out of wedlock at the time. That was a horror to the family. Mary gave birth to a son in the humiliation of a barn. Mary and the family had to run for their lives. They were being chased by kings under threat of death. They became refugees in a foreign land. Mary lived her whole life as a peasant in poverty and disrespected. Mary lived her whole life under the oppression of an invading and unjust Roman Empire. Mary's husband, Joseph, likely died young. He just disappears out of scripture, meaning that she would be living on the edge of sustainability. When the, the, the poor peasant carpenter husband died, it leaves the wife in a very precarious situation, cared for only by her children. And Mary, the woman who is called in the Bible, blessed among all women, bore the greatest burden of all women, which is to watch her, her precious son die in front of her own eyes. At the cross of Christ, there was Mary and John, and I'm, I'm, I'm well enough because this has happened recently, even in, in our own church family, a mother watching her son die. And I was there from one of those times. Nothing worse in all the earth than a mother watching her own son die. At the cross, it was Mary and John, Jesus' best friend, and Jesus, even on the cross, bearing the sins and suffering of the world upon himself, he was looking out for his mom, and he looked to his mom, Mary, and he said, Mary, behold your son. And then he looked to John, his best friend, and said, John, behold your mother. She is now your mother. basically saying to his best friend, you better take care of my mom like she's your own. And the Bible says immediately, John took Mary into his household. This woman's life was a life of, of some torment and suffering. It's not this quaint 
Christmas card life. Her life of faith was a hard one, but her life of faith is now a legacy for all of us to celebrate. We celebrate God, we celebrate his son, but we're celebrating Mary today as well because in fear and in bravery, she took a step of belief, counting as true something she could not prove. So as we close, I want us to take the promises that were given to Mary and I want us to recognize that those same promises are for us today. Those exact same promises are to us today. God called Mary by name. He calls you by name. Scripture is very clear. He calls us by name. Do you believe that God, the Heavenly Father, loves you so much that he's calling you by name? He wants you to know his love for you. He wants you to know the extent of his love. He sent his own son, Jesus, to prove it. He paid the price on a cross to forgive us and to forgive the world of the sin that separates us from God, and he reconciled us to himself. He brought us to himself in love. Do you believe you're called by name to God's kingdom of faith? Do you believe that you are favored? You are also favored? When God said to Mary, you are a favored one, he says the same thing to us today, and we think, I'm not good enough to be favored by God. I'm not religious. I'm not moral. I'm not good. Ephesians chapter one, you are a dearly loved daughter of God, a dearly loved son of God. You are in his eyes unblemished. Why? He gives that to you as a gift. You believe that God gave you that gift. You are dearly loved son, daughter of God, holy and blameless in his sight. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're given a high calling just like Mary? Mary was given a high calling to bear the son of God immaculately. You may not have that calling, it's a guess. I'm pretty sure I don't have that calling. I don't even have a womb. Put that in your notes. Our pastor doesn't have a womb. I don't have that same calling as Mary did, but I have a high calling as well. Maybe to love my family with the love of Christ, to love my neighbors, to love those who are strangers, to love those who have nothing. We have a high calling to be the light of God in this world, to be the love of God in this world. Do you believe that God calls you by name? Do you believe that by his son, Jesus Christ, he calls you favored? And do you believe that you have a high calling in life, a high, meaningful calling filled with purpose and filled with love, love received and love given? If you have not yet had that journey of being persuaded to believe those things, today could be part of that journey right now. And I'm gonna pray a prayer of faith. I'm gonna pray a prayer of belief. And this could be your time, your moment to begin that journey of faith in God, that brave step to know that you are loved, to know that you're a child of God, to know that you have a purpose in this life. Let's pray. Our God and Father, every week through music, through your word, we celebrate your love for us. And this Christmas is a very special celebration as we focus on the nature of belief, belief doesn't have to be perfect, belief doesn't have to be pure, belief can come with, with fear and doubt and the, and the bravery of, of not quite knowing. That's just the nature of belief. But when we take that step, that step of faith, that step of belief, everything changes, how we perceive this world changes. So we believe that, that, that you are a loving heavenly father, that you are not um, a brooding judge eager to, eager to condemn. You're a loving heavenly father, eager to save, eager to forgive, eager to bring us near to yourself. We believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to, to live out and to teach a whole new kingdom. As Gabriel promised to Mary, a new king of a new kingdom that would last forever, a kingdom of love, of grace, of acceptance, 
a kingdom where every man, woman, and child knows that they are unconditionally loved by you. And, and the life of Christ given on a cross proves that. And the resurrection of Christ proves that your love wins. It's your love that pulled Jesus from the grave, seated him at your right hand, the king of a whole new kingdom of, of love. We believe in Jesus. We believe in your love. We accept this new reality that we are called by name to be a daughter, a son of God. We accept this new reality that we are favored in your eyes as a free gift, nothing we can deserve. We accept this new reality that we have a high calling not to just be loved, but to love others. Help us to love well. All of that begins with the journey of belief. So we believe in you. We believe in your son, Jesus Christ. We believe in the free gift of love and grace and forgiveness in him. And it's in his name we pray and everybody said, amen. 